0: This week on the Cameron Journal podcast, we are talking about impeachment and the 2020 race. We had a debate this past Tuesday in Atlanta. There were some standout performances and the impeachment inquiry is uh, at a close, might be at a break. We don't know. So strap in. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Cameron Cowan speaking. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. We're excited to be with you this week. I am moving the microphone briefly so I can be closer to it. A lot has happened this week. Lots of news stories has happened. Uh, The impeachment inquiry has been most of the week, but on Tuesday we took a brief break from the impeachment inquiry to have the fifth Democratic primary debate with ten candidates at Tyler Perry's new movie studio in Atlanta. Um, There's another debate scheduled for December 19th, which I think is way too close to Christmas. But December 19th, I don't remember where it's going to be just now, but we're going to have one. Um, I have live tweeted all these debates, so if you were following me on Twitter, at Cameron Cowan, I was reacting in real time and giving you hot takes about the debate. Um, So that is, um, yeah, that's kind of what what the week shaped up to be. Um, There have been some other interesting things going on. There are still um, global protests happening around the world. Um, In Hong Kong, in Chile, um, Iran shut off the internet to its entire populace to quell a protest um, that was going on in its country. So authoritarians are cracking down. Yeah, or authoritarian regimes are cracking down. Um, So that was... That's kind of been in the background of everything. Those stories haven't gotten a whole lot of traction because domestic politics here in the U.S. are quite busy. But it is good to mention those things are still very much going on. A passel of students were arrested in Hong Kong. They cleared out the university um, of of student protesters um, because the students are still protesting the Chinese regime in Hong Kong. And China has been reluctant to crack down hard on Hong Kong. I wonder if that's still coming. That's happening. Um, I believe I talked about this on Twitter. Um, And I think I also mentioned it last week um, with what's happening in Bolivia and the the military back coup that occurred against Evo Morales. I think we talked about that last week on the podcast. Um, So that is all still ongoing. The world is a busy crazy place right now. But today, so we don't end up with a super super long podcast, um we're going to focus on the 2020 race and impeachment. If you have been waiting for more produced episodes from the podcast, um bear with me. I have a novel coming out um in December and I'm also getting my e-commerce stores ready for the holidays. So, um it's it so the, the produced episodes of the podcast are, you know, it, it's a it's a difficult difficult thing. Um, to get those on right now. But I, I am planning on doing some major recording in December. I have to record What the Hell is Going On, my book that came out in October. I have to um, get the audiobook version of that done. So I will be sitting in front of a microphone recording a bunch of stuff for you, editing a bunch of stuff for you. I promise, please bear with. Um, the Widger Reading Boutique will have um, a vast new selection of books Coming for your holiday shopping season. And what's even better, we're now offering ebooks and audiobooks. So um, keep an eye on my social media profiles for that. I will talk more about um, that. Um, in the future. I also want to note that next week is Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving to everyone. We will not have a podcast next Saturday. Um, The news week on the week of Thanksgiving is notoriously slow. There's not a whole lot going on, and we all want to be with our families and take the days and weekends off. Um, Some of us use holidays to catch up on things, um, which may be the case for me, but my girlfriend is certainly, um, I think, has us on a pretty full schedule for those couple of days um, with some Friendsgivings and things like that. So there will not be a podcast next week, so luxuriate in this week. Um, and keep an eye on social and your email for the updates to the bookstore. I'm really excited for people to f- find some great books and some great reads over the holidays. So it's going to be um, exciting. It's going to be fun times. So um, let's dive in. To one story I wanted to mention before we get into impeachment and the debate. Um, New York Times posted a story this morning about how the number of workers um, moving for jobs and other reasons is actually gone down. Um, there's It's about basically the lowest level since 1947 when they first started keeping track of... Um, of this data, so it, it basically just means that when it comes to work and mobility and people moving around for jobs, opportunities, getting a larger house, whatever have you, um, people are just kind of staying put, and I always end up reading the comment sections of these because I find it interesting what people say and what they react to the things. And the reasons people mentioned for this possibility, I thought, were very interesting and extremely compelling, and I agree with them. One of the ones was that people, you know, because of economic circumstances with child care and elder care and all this type of thing, people need to stay near their families, and that will definitely cause people to move less. Um, the other thing is that cities, while jobs in cities are growing, um, the number of housing units in cities has grown far slower. And that means really high living costs in major cities, which also is kind of keeping people to to home. Um, and that, you know, and large cities, although they have lots of low-wage jobs and for people looking to try to make it in a city or start a family or do better for their children at least, um, you know, going to a city and starting with those opportunities and with a low-wage job can be appealing, but the reality is that if you're working a low-wage job, in a city, the likelihood is that you're not going to be able to easily afford housing. Um, and most people do not necessarily want to live with roommates into their 30s or just spend that much of their limited income on housing, which is either going to force people out of cities to start with or prevent them from moving there in the beginning. And I, for myself, personally completely understand that sentiment. I moved to a major city, had an opportunity to live somewhere very cheap, Um and then when I moved up and got more expensive places, all that type of thing, the minute I wanted to start my own business and restart doing things here at the, um, with the Cameron Journal podcast and CameronJournal.com, um, I immediately moved to a to a less expensive area. <laughs> this is what it basically what I did immediately is I, as I moved to a less expensive area so that I could save a lot on housing and put that and devote those dollars. To the business, so I I thought that was very very interesting, and this whole idea of people moving and taking opportunities and getting the American dream and all this type of thing basically is not terribly happening. People are oftentimes staying, but there's also people also bring different situations, um, uh, with uh, you know with their house if they can. Sell their house, what housing they can get in a new location, if they can get the same amount of housing, um, or if they would end up in a smaller, um, you know, less great place where they were where they were moving. So that I thought was a factor. Um, the other one that I thought it, economically that was very interesting, and I think will have interesting side effects for people long term. It says here, um, one result. This is from the New York Times article. One result has been a geographic unevenness. Decades ago, less wealthy parts of the country tended to be the ones that attracted the most new residents, because lower rents and wages there drew in businesses, and people were likely to move to where jobs were. But the economy is now less flexible, with prosperity clustered in larger cities, with businesses and people moving less. It used to be poorer places grew faster, but that's gone, said Jay Shambaugh, an economics professor at George Washington University. This is really a different economy than it used to be. It's one where places that struggle continue to struggle. That's true for southern West Virginia, where the scourge of opioids is tearing through a second generation of families. Johnny Nick Hager, 25, who works as a cook and school bus driver in Mingo County, said he had thought about moving to Tennessee or New York, like his friends and relatives who fled the drugs and joblessness. There are no jobs in Mingo County. It's move or bust, he said on Wednesday. But for now, he's staying put, hoping to make things better. He's running for county commission in 2020. I want to try to make a difference in my area before I do leave, he said. If things don't change, we're all going to have to leave. Changes in the economy have made moving less appealing for some. It used to be that all workers, with college degrees or without, could count on earning more in denser urban areas. Cities also offered lower-skill workers better jobs in offices and factories. An analysis by David Autor, an economist at MIT, found that the urban wage advantage is largely gone for less-educated workers, and the jobs that remain for them in cities are in personal services— food, cleaning, health, entertainment, recreation, transportation, and repair. People who are moving longer distances between counties and between states are disproportionately college-educated, Mr. Frey said. When Tyler Wilson graduated from college last year, he moved back in with his parents in Levittsburg, Ohio, near Youngstown. And it goes on to his story, which is the close of the article, which he says— um, that he would have to be paid a lot in order to move. And he um, he's, was working at a factory, and now he's working at a multinational company in Cleveland making sterilization equipment for hospitals. So, um, it, I, I, I bring it up because I think it has, it has odd and different long-term implications um, for the economy in terms of, especially even politically, Because areas that struggle, that are continuing to struggle, and the uneven prosperity that's clustering in big cities, I think is going to continue to, areas that are not sharing in the prosperity, areas that are not getting new jobs, new opportunities, new ways to be able to make a life, I think are going to continue to um, vote for things and people that offer them that, even though the economic reality is that cities are the job centers of tomorrow. And America is an is an incredibly not-dense country. And that's going to leave all millions of people behind. As I, I said this before, I, we, I had an article on um, Rouges several months ago where I said that America needs to urbanize for a couple reasons. And one was was services, social services especially, but also in jobs, because in the past, companies and factories and things were wanted cheap land, so they spread themselves up into small and medium-sized towns. Now that's not the case in the knowledge economy. Cities are the centers. That's where the job market is the most dynamic for business. Businesses don't need vast amounts of cheap land out in the country, and that means people that are living in small towns and cities are going to be at an economic disadvantage, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. In fact, I think it could be that way for quite a long time. So the fact that people are moving less, they're staying where they are, and the the fact that where they are probably isn't that great, and wages aren't really moving, so it makes it hard to move to a big city, but that's where the jobs are, all this type of thing. I think this uneven prosperity is going to continue to to change our political realities for quite some time. And really, I think at this point, the only way to change that is to incentivize companies to move to rural areas or... You need to incentivize cities to build dramatically more housing so more people can move to cities and take advantage of those economic opportunities. I think that that really is two choices to get the prosperity working and moving for everyone. I think that's a vital policy change that we need to discuss. And no such policy proposal really is getting made by anyone. Um, I don't think a lot of people, even who are running for president, don't understand the economic realities, and I don't think they're reading these types of articles. So, um, which is a great segue into talking about the debate on Tuesday. Um, I thought... This debate, I think, was difficult because, for one, it was incredibly boring. Um, It was the fifth one. We've had almost a debate a month for five months going... It's always a competition to see who was, who was going to be there, whatever have you. There were some great moments. Um, Gabbard v. Harris and Gabbard v. Buttigieg were both very interesting. Um, Kamala Harris has found her teeth again and attacked Gabbard on meeting with Assad and courting with dictators, all this sort of thing. Gabbard punched back on, on Harris, but I think Harris came out of that winning. Gabbard definitely punched Buttigieg on being young and inexperienced and not having a a clue how national government works or how foreign policy works, all this type of thing. And she leaned in to his biggest weakness, the fact that he's barely old enough to run for president at 37. Um, The back and forth on Twitter is interesting. There are a lot of conservative Democrats who think Gabbard's great, people who are anti-war, who want to change America's foreign policy, all this type of thing, really gravitate towards Gabbard. I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of people who are um, very, there's some people who are not a fan of Kamala Harris because she was a prosecutor and a cop. Some people call her a cop, rather. Um, and that's, but there's also what they call the K-hive, Um, There's also some, like, some not insignificant support of Kamala Harris as well. I have always found it interesting that her pop into the double digits over the summer has largely disappeared. Um, New York Times sent out an email literally right as I was getting to do this, which I'm like, oh, how helpful. Um, Where they said the national polling average for Kamala Harris is 4% and her weekly media mentions are down. Um... The national polling average for Joe Biden remains at 27%, and he's mentioned the most in the media. Elizabeth Warren comes in second at 22%, Bernie Sanders at 18%, and Pete Buttigieg at 8%. So Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are pretty close together. You then have a small gap to Bernie Sanders, and then a huge gap to Pete Buttigieg, and then everyone else. Kamala Harris is at 4%, Yang at 3, Klobuchar at 3. Cory Booker at two, Tulsi Gabbard at two and Tom Steyer at less than 1%. Um, and, and Michael Bloomberg is jumping into the race. And as of this afternoon is going to spend $30 million on advertising nationwide, which is more than all the other candidates have spent combined. So that is kind of where the, where the race sits. Um, the moderation was much better, this debate. So it was an MSNBC-Washington Post debate, and the debate team was Andrea Mitchell, Rachel Maddow, and two others, um, and people commented that um, can women just be in charge of everything because it was the first actually well-run debate with not a lot of crosstalk, no one really went over, there was good enforcement of the rules. There was also a diverse amount of... Of topics. We touched on abortion, voter suppression, which is a huge issue in Georgia, foreign policy, paid family leave, even a little bit of climate change. There was also reasonable conversation on foreign policy and on immigration. So in two hours, we probably covered more topics in that one debate than the previous two, really and truly. Um, Bernie Sanders did incredibly well. He d- hit all his points, talked about corruption. He looked fresh. His voice was better. All all was well. Um, something that people mentioned that people thought was interesting, but I also am kind of not surprised about, um, is Buttigieg went a long time without really taking any incoming damage. And here's the reason why that's significant. Buttigieg is leading in some very small sample size polls in Iowa, and the media narrative around him right now is that, oh, he's leading in Iowa. If he wins in Iowa, that immediately makes him a top-tier candidate. That means he could, you know, take out Joe Biden, possibly, or, you know, or if he wins in Iowa, that might really shift support away from possibly Biden or Warren. Um, If he wins in Iowa, that is kind of a, Big problem if your name is Amy Klobuchar, because um, they're both Midwest moderates, and her whole thing is, I'm from the Midwest, and I can get Republican votes, and Buttigieg is on that same track. So if Buttigieg is doing well in Iowa, that's not great news if you're Amy Klobuchar. It's also not necessarily great news if you're Kamala Harris. Um, so it, that there's kind of a, a lot of media hubbub, hubbub about that right now. So people anticipated going into this debate that Buttigieg would take a lot of incoming for being a front runner in an early caucus state. And that didn't really happen. He didn't end up really taking any incoming until he got with Klobuchar and Gabbard. And and Klobuchar basically came and said, I have experience. I understand how the national government works. You're the mayor of a small town in Indiana. Like, what are you, you know, what are you doing here sort of thing? Um, and Tulsi Gabbard also criticized him for basically the same thing. Like, you're too young. You don't know what you're talking about. Why are you here? Um, but he went a long time without taking any incoming. And people were posting, like, why is no one going after Buttigieg? How is he getting away with all of this stuff? Um, it, it's quite an interesting, an interesting dynamic. Um, I'm not quite really sure why Buttigieg is leading in Iowa. Buttigieg does really well among college-educated white voters, of which Iowa has several. Um, I don't know why he's leading there other than he's young, he's a new voice, he's palatable, he's not super progressive, he's not extreme. Um, I think he reminds people of Joe Biden many years ago, and that... I don't know that winning in Iowa is going to a campaign make for him. I think it may be difficult for the rest of the party to get behind him. Um, and I don't even think it's a gay thing, I think it's an age thing. I think people might think that 37 is just simply too young. He doesn't have a lot of experience. He's only ever won, I think, you know, maybe 20,000 votes his entire life. Um, and the last time he ran for governor of Indiana, he lost by twenty five points. So I think there's just you know there's kind of this you know kind of like the, you know, what is it with this guy? And the big criticism with Buttigieg is um, that he you know he is he's just yeah I mean it's kind of funny how much the gay thing doesn't come up, but that he's just you know he's just really young. And I think that's gonna be his biggest problem. Um, That and the problem that he cannot seem to attract African American voters. And I think the thing about that, which you don't get the Democratic nomination without the African American, without support among African American voters, is that he's a new face. He hasn't been in the community, gone to address the problems, or even tried to address the problems in his own town. I interacted with someone. Who said they were not interested in Buttigieg because he fired South Bend's first black police chief, who sued for wrong for, for who sued for wrongful termination? Ultimately, the police chief in South Bend serves at the pleasure of the mayor, and Buttigieg made a judgment call. We can decide if that was good or not, but he made one, and he was criticized in South Bend at the time. Um, and I think it, you know will that be the thing that cost him national support? Possibly. He has some headwinds. I wouldn't get too excited about him leading in one Monmouth poll in Iowa. It's nice, you know. It shows that voters maybe are ready for a different idea. I think it shows they're ready for a more moderate idea, um, as opposed to Warren and Sanders. But I wouldn't put too much stock into it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Kamala Harris is trying to reintroduce herself to voters, in the same Monmouth poll where Buttigieg was leading, she's down by 9% in that poll. Um, and I kind of made a note that, interestingly enough, no one doubts her ability to take on Trump. However, I do think the fact that she's a woman and she's a black woman maybe making voters skittish, I think she had a great moment in the early debates that didn't materialize into more energy and momentum, and now she's down in the single digits. Um... And I think that, I think it's giving voters pause. I think she's giving off Hillary Clinton vibes. I think people are struggling. I, I, think, I think a lot of voters, their primary concern is, how do we beat Trump? Two, how do we beat Trump? And three, how do we beat Trump? And I think while people like her and think she can take on Trump, voters this round are not wanting to take risks. We took a risk in 2016, we nominated Hillary Clinton, and it didn't work out. And I think I think that's I think that's getting Kamala Harris. I think that's getting Klobuchar. I even think that's starting to affect Elizabeth Warren, who this week um, moderated her Medicare for All strategy. So rather than going straight for the we're ending private insurance and going straight to Medicare for All. She has gone for having, like, a Medicare option, raising the age of Medicare to 50 over 64, all these kind of more moderate policies that still allow a space for private health insurance to exist. Also, the price tag for her plan came in, and it is $20 trillion over the next decade, which is a lot of money to spend on such things. Um, it's not a lot in the healthcare world, necessarily. We'll probably spend at least that or a third more of it in healthcare costs anyway. It's just a matter if we're going to give it to private insurance companies or not. And that, I think, has... I I think she has figured out that a vast majority of the country is not ready to completely ditch private health insurance. A lot of people have private health insurance, especially through their employer. A lot of people think their insurance is good enough. It might be costly, or they might have a deductible, whatever have you, but as far as they're concerned, their system works okay for most people. There's 159 million people who have private health insurance in this country. And for them, if you have insurance, the system works pretty well. The problem is we have people at the bottom who have nothing. And I think a lot of people are not ready to give up their good enough health insurance to save people who just don't have anything. And that's where I think Joe Biden has some appeal by saying, let's expand Obamacare, let's make Medicaid bigger, let's make it so that if you don't, um, you know... If you don't have access to healthcare, you can access it in another way, increase subsidies on the exchange, and make healthcare more available. So that's all, you know, those are all kind of things that can be um, in place. There were some Biden gaffes, including him saying that he was endorsed by the only black female senator ever to be elected, and Kamala Harris literally had to say, I'm standing right here. <laughs> and that was a great gif of her just being like, the, the other one is stand, like she was just said like, the other one is standing right here and there's a great gif of her just being like I'm right here Joe <laughs> like it was it was pretty funny um during the break one of the TV breaks um Steve Cornacki was on the web stream and posted some interesting polling data showing low youth support for Biden So the bulk of Biden's support um, is in the over 35 crowd. So if you look at 35 and over, Biden's support is at the top. However, if you look at 18 to 35, Sanders goes from fourth position to first. It's not surprising that Sanders is more popular with younger people than with older people. Younger people are more open to democratic socialism than our older people. What's surprising about that polling data that I thought was very interesting is that the gap And I look at it this way. Joe Biden, if you're a millennial, if you're an older millennial, you had a chance to vote for Obama-Biden in 2008. So if you were born by 1990, you had a chance to vote for Biden already on a ticket. If you were born later than that, you probably don't remember a whole lot of the Bush years. You probably remember Obama getting elected, and you grew up with Biden as your vice president. I find it very interesting that Biden's familiarity with younger people because they've been as vice president or he's run with Obama for them, all this type of thing, you know, that the gap is such that it is. That younger voters are really rejecting the old ideas and really embracing new democratic socialism ideas. I think that's incredibly, incredibly interesting. I thought the polling data was quite, quite significant. So um, overall, I think the debate was, it was good. It was it was productive, if a bit tedious, just for the amount of topics that was discovered, the back and forth that occurred. Um, you know, we got to hear a little bit from Tom Steyer. Um, Andrew Yang says he misses Beta O'Rourke, who's dropped out. Um, I'm not quite sure who has or has not qualified for the December debate yet. I think um, Booker said he hadn't qualified yet. We did get some good moments from Cory Booker. He really kind of stepped out. Klobuchar as well, so we're starting to hear more from kind of the bottom end of the polling, of, of, of the polling end of things, which I think is, is good. I think Booker has a nice angle on a potential VP slot. Um, I could see a Warren Booker. I could see a Biden Booker. Um, that's a nice alliteration. Um, I, I think that there's some potentialities, Um, And I mean, Klobuchar as well. I could see a Biden-Klobuchar. That could work really well. Um, In some unlikely event where Buttigieg gets the top of the ticket, I could also foresee him, um, you know, being a vice president pick, or if he's at the top of the ticket, potentially picking a Booker or Klobuchar. Um, I could see that working out really well for them. So that that was good. I've kind of always wondered where... um, you know what it's gonna take for Cory Booker to break out. I'm not quite sure what the the disconnect there is, um, but I'm interested to see how things develop with him. Um, it is kind of sad though that he doesn't really register in polling data. I think that's that's quite that's quite sad. But we haven't gotten the post debate all the post debate polling yet in. It'll take place over the weekend, so I'll be interested to see what the post-debate polling is early next week. So keep an eye on my social for that one. And now, we're going to turn to the other big, giant news story of the week, and that is impeachment. This week wrapped up the second week of impeachment proceedings in the House Intelligence Committee. There are no further public testimonies scheduled. Now, Congress is off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday, so most of the members have already left town. Um, I record this on Friday. You're listening to it on Saturday. And Congress has already pretty much left town for the week. There are, so there is nothing more on the schedule at this time, so never, no one's quite sure if, you know, the process is over and they're going to send all the evidence to the judiciary committee to write articles of impeachment or if they're going to proceed with more testimony um even as the ukraine scandal has unfolded it has also spawned other scandals so this week we heard from four people that were quite important um the first was Ambassador Gordon Sonland, who's the ambassador to the EU, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who is a Ukraine expert and was an immigrant from that country as a child, um, Dr. F- um, Fiona Hill, who was the Ukraine expert in the White House, and uh, her compatriot Mr. Holmes, who is also a Ukraine expert. Um, all of these people, Vindman, Hill, and Holmes, were on a team to deal with the Ukraine crisis together. Um, Sondland, interesting, although ambassador to the EU, was not really supposed to be dealing with Ukraine, which was an area where Fiona Hill and him conflicted. Um, And that was... Her recounting of that was quite interesting. But we're going to start with Sondland. So it seemed like this week that despite his deposition, he seemed to really kind of go in on Trump. As such, So here's what happened. Um, Vox had a good readout of it. So he confirmed the first quid pro quo, and he said he believed himself to be carrying out the president's orders. And he also mentioned that the, the big takeaway from his, his testimony was that it wasn't just the president who had this idea. Um, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, and Vice President Mike Pence were also very much involved. Um, however, the interesting part is that while Sondland remembers some details spectacularly well, there are other details that seem to be quite fuzzy. Um, and that, I think, is quite interesting. So it says, so he, he remembers the phone call on September 9th, um, but then when when it comes to the July phone calls, which started this deal, that seemed to not, his memory was not so... So good. It says here that Sondland's goal Wednesday was clearly to get the heat off himself. He was widely viewed as the least credible of the closed-door witnesses, and some Democrats even said he may have perjured himself. He seems to have succeeded in that, but he seems to have done so, offering up new details implicating everyone except Trump. So a couple of things that Sondland knew was, one, that Burisma, this gas company, was a code name for Biden, And that's a bit questionable, Um, especially because it was um, only somewhat corroborated by David Holmes, um, the State Department official in Kiev, and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was an NSC staffer. Um, The other problem is Sondland couldn't remember all the other calls with Trump, just only one particular ones which definitely doesn't do anything for his credibility and the, the the details he's willing to be um a part of and the things that the details he's not willing to give up are very interesting. So like with this call situation <clears throat> um it says here that um, on September 9th, the day after Sondland texted um, Ambassador Taylor, who testified last week about multiple convos of the president. Um, Taylor sent the now infamous text. As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with the political campaign, a text that Sondland took four and a half hours to respond to. After receiving that text, Sondland says he called Trump. In his account of the conversation, um, he repeated on um, on on Wednesday... And that was the whole where he said he wanted nothing, he wanted no quid pro quo, he just wanted Zelensky to do the right thing, and <clears throat> that everyone else but Sondland seems to have an understanding of what exactly Trump was looking for, and that Trump was trying to get Zelensky to do the investigations into Biden to help himself politically. And that and that's where it's odd, because it's like he, like, on some things, he was open, On other things, he was not. That said, it was still bombshell testimony because now it's drug in Pompeo and Pence, which is, you know, interesting enough. We didn't necessarily really see that coming. And one of the things that seems to have come out of the Sondland testimony is the fact that Sondland has um, basically implicated that there was a group effort in order to kind of make this Ukraine thing happen and pressure Zelensky into opening an investigation in the Bidens to get the $400 million of funding. That was the interesting part. However, again, other scandals spinning out from this is that Trump called into Fox and Friends, as he is wont to do, and that he... Um, this whole idea that he's looking for this server from CrowdStrike that has evidence of Ukrainian meddling in support of Trump, which has been long, 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 long debunked. Um, and that was also talked about with Fiona Hill, where she said she's afraid that um, that uh, Trump is given into this kind of false narrative um, that really is some a narrative that was created by Russia to start with. Um, basically said that he's still looking for this server um, that has all this incriminating evidence. It was sent to a Ukrainian company called CrowdStrike. And Trump is quoted by saying, a lot of it had to do, they say, with Ukraine, Trump said. They have the server, right, from the DNC. They gave the server to CrowdStrike, or whatever it's called, which is a company owned by a very wealthy Ukrainian. And I still want to see that server. You know, the FBI has never gotten that server. That's a big part of the whole thing. Why did they give it to a Ukrainian company? The company could have owned it? I don't know. Just putting that out there. Um, he said, host oh, Steve Ducey seemed somewhat taken aback by Trump's claims and responded by asking him, Are you sure they did that? Are you sure they gave it to Ukraine? Trump's sourcing was weak, to put it mildly. Article says that. Well, that's what the word is, Trump is quoted as saying. And the uh, it's it doesn't seem like there's any evidence for this. Fiona Hill argues that it is a conspiracy theory created by the Russian FSB to cast doubt around who was interfering in the election in 2016, that it was really Ukraine and not Russia, and that Russia's busy trying to throw Ukraine under the bus. And this whole seeking out this magical server it may have been part of what started this whole quid pro quo thing anyway. Um, and that uh, he even mentioned it to Zelensky on some on this call. Um, and according to the FBI, CrowdStrike, this company, so here's how the CrowdStrike thing happened. Let me start from the beginning. So CrowdStrike was a cybersecurity firm the DNC hired to investigate the DNC hack that released the Podesta emails way back in 2016. <clears throat> CrowdStrike cooperated with the FBI's investigation of the hack, but Trump is still on this whole idea that there is this magical missing server that has all this evidence on it that is somehow disappeared into Ukraine, and he wants to get it out of Ukraine. He's even brought up the whole deep state sort of thing. <clears throat> it says here in the article, and this is important, huh, that... Um, Crowds st- that first of all, there is there can't be a one magical single server because that's not how servers work. The DNC, like everyone else, uses a distributed server system. And two, CrowdStrike is actually not even based in Ukraine, it's based in California. So, this whole idea that there's some sort of inside job, um, was rather, um, was rather it's just false, like, it just doesn't. It just doesn't work. There's not there's not this whole thing that's trying to to happen. There's not this deep state conspiracy. Yeah, you know, there's no one really trying to protect any anybody. Um, and there's and the other problems that Ukraine is not involved. And it seems that according to Fiona Hill, the implication is that this whole idea of throwing Ukraine under the bus has far more to do with Russia continuing to use Ukraine as a foil for their own actions and to cover up what they have been up to. And President Trump is willing to play right into their hand by continuing to repeat the conspiracy theory and use military aid in order to get the Ukrainians to do something and produce something that it's quite quite likely they simply do not have. They just don't. So... That was kind that is kind of what has transpired with the impeachment inquiry this this week. Fiona Hill has become a celebrity basically everyone loved Fiona Hill and her lovely north um Western British accent and her explaining how she realized that the problem with her and Sondland is that her and Holmes and Vindman were trying to do national security, and Sondland was going on a, as she put it, personal political errand for the president. And that part of the reason he wasn't coordinating is because they weren't doing the same job. So... It's... It, it, I think the the Democrats were looking for a smoking gun moment, a bombshell moment. I think between Vindman, Fiona Hill, and and David Holmes, they got what they wanted. Latoura Kellen Vindman has been hailed as a hero. He's an NSC expert working in Ukraine. He immigrated to here as a child. He had a moving bit in his opening statement about telling his father not to worry because the truth matters in America and that he's going to be okay despite the fact that he's speaking truth to power. His father coming from the Soviet Union is obviously used to a political system where that simply isn't possible. And he has, like I said, been widely, um, widely hailed as a hero for being honest about what he saw, what was going on with Ukraine, and how American national security interests have been jeopardized in order to support Mr. Trump's political goals. Also, he could get an investigation into Joe Biden to kill Joe Biden's presidential chances. I mean, let's keep all of this in perspective. Trump asked Ukraine to start investigations into the Bidens to knock Joe Biden out of the presidential contest. That alone should be concerning on top of the withholding American aid in order to get it done on top of making Slinsky go on American television to say that he's investigating the Bidens and this corruption has happened on top of the whole attacking crowd strike for the. So as with Trump, it's always there's so many layers of it. It's the Ukraine server. it's blaming Ukraine for election interference. It's trying to get investigations into the Bidens. It's multiple things. every time this gets looked into, there's always more to it. And then, to quote Nancy Pelosi, all roads seem to lead back to Putin when it comes to Trump. And the, and the, and that's somewhat corroborated by Fiona Hill, who said, we've known for a while it was Russia who interfered in the 2016 election. They're trying to blame it on Ukraine. The president's pushing this conspiracy theory, and it's simply not true. So the, there's multiple, multiple layers in the whole process and like the more <clears throat> the more you look into it the more the, the more complicated it gets and and that's the i think that's the hard part is that it is a it's just so damn complicated and i, I know the democrats chose <clears throat> chose this scandal to move forward with impeachment, because it is rather simple. But the problem is every time you look into it, it also gets more complicated. Like, okay, now we have the CrowdStrike server thing that's been ongoing for a while. Okay, cool. Then we also have the quid pro quo with the investigations with with Joe Biden. Okay, cool. Now we have this whole Ukraine was supposed to be interfering in the election, and we're trying to prove that sort of thing, or we're trying to obfuscate Russia's election interference. And that's... You know the other thing where people talk about, oh, Russia Gate was so stupid, and the, the mainstream media really screwed the pooch on that one, and you know, and that this was all turned out to be false. And the fact of the matter is that the, is that all this Ukraine scandal has proved is that everything Mueller found in the Mueller report was one hundred and ten percent true. Yes, we had Russian interference. Trump tried to cover it up. When the Mueller investigation started, Trump thought it was all going to be over, that it was all going to unravel. I don't think Trump even knows how he's going to get himself out of this one. Last weekend, he was in the hospital for two hours on an emergency basis, but for routine testing. And he's traveling with the White House physician. Wherever Trump goes, the doctor goes. So there's that. The reality is that the is that in this whole impeachment inquiry, the Russia problem still very much matters, and it's still a huge problem. I would encourage you, if you haven't, to go take a listen to some of the clips or read some of the great journalism that's being done right now. Vox has some great stuff um, in regards to um, in regards to the impeachment inquiry. If you haven't gone on and listened to some of the, um, uh, if you haven't gone on and listened to some of the, some of the testimony, um, I would highly recommend you do so, you do so, um, particularly, um, some of the stuff I've reposted on Twitter. I would highly, 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 highly recommend you do so, because a lot of it is compelling. Fiona Hill explains how Sondland, who's ambassador to the EU, was brought in to deal with Ukraine, how he was undermining everyone, and how Trump and company set up a back channel to the Ukraine for Trump's own political purpose. And this is not, just as a friendly reminder, this is not normal. This is not how the government is supposed to work. The president should not be working to his own financial gain, should not be working to his own political gain, behind the scenes, using public funds for the purpose. This is not the way things are supposed to work. As John Oliver put it, this really and truly is stupid Watergate, and it's sad. There's no deadlines upcoming <clears throat> for further impeachment inquiry. Um, there's no further public testimony scheduled. Um, the spotlight's about to move to the to the Judiciary Committee who will end up writing the articles of impeachment. Um, Nancy Pelosi said the inquiry is still open, but gave no deadlines as to when the inquiry will close. And the uh, impeachment proceeding moves to the next step. So we have inquiry, <clears throat> articles, and vote in the House. The, we're, in the, we're on step, we have two weeks into step one. <clears throat> we have to figure out when we're going to move on to step two and step three. I believe that they want to get this done before the Iowa caucuses, which are on February 22nd. So I imagine um, we'll see more when they come back from Thanksgiving break. I also imagine things are going to get interesting because they've only funded the government through December 20th. So we could end up having an impeachment and government um, potential shutdown budget problem face off in late December, right around Christmas. Should be fun. That's this week's podcast. I'm going to let you go. If you have questions about the impeachment process, how things are working, or why things are important, please don't be afraid to email, email at cameroncowan.net. You're welcome to write in. Or you can use the contact form on the website at CameronJournal.com. You can also get me on social media at Cameron Cowen. I'm happy to answer your questions, so please don't be afraid to ask them. I... Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And I will see you in two weeks. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Keep an eye on CameronJournal.com. I wrote a special Thanksgiving message for everyone. So look forward to the next time we get a chance to talk together. Talk soon. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal podcast.